0: I knew Sarah personally, Uh, I know her family, and uh, it'll be good to tell them that we prayed for them too. Uh, Her older brother, Josh, her younger brother, Daniel, um, I'm in touch with them a little more regularly, so it'll be just very good to be able to go home and tell them that their family was prayed for, so thank you for that indeed our our Savior our precious Savior is a lovely person and if we had opportunity to watch him closely to fix our eyes upon him while he was here in the days of his flesh we would have known this and by faith I hope this morning that we can fix our eyes upon him as we spend time in the scriptures There's a story I was told about uh, a man who was invited by a certain assembly of Christians to come and teach. And uh, he was to take those responsibilities week after week for a period of time. And as he was doing so, um, he felt something was lacking in his preaching. He felt something was wrong and he couldn't put his finger on it. He wasn't sure if everyone else knew, but he certainly felt like he knew that something was amiss. And he prayed about it, and he continued to teach, to preach, and uh, he had a growing sense that uh, the saints knew it as well. And it really made him uncomfortable. One day he got up to speak, and there was a note uh, up on the pulpit. And he opened up the note, and it was from the saints. uh, And it said, Sir, we would see Jesus. That just about broke his heart. He wasn't sure how to take that. Um, Didn't even know what it meant, but he went and struggled through the message and then went home and began to pray and just be before the Lord about what it was that they were trying to communicate to him. And he realized that um, he really needed to make some adjustments to his teaching and to his preaching so that he might present the person of Christ to, to the people of God more faithfully. And so he began to make those adjustments and he began to be encouraged himself and he also felt the sense that the saints were uh, responding well and and he was was delighted. Well, one day he got up to speak again and there was another note. Maybe he was a little nervous at this point of what this would say, but he opened it up and it said, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. We used those two verses yesterday and uh, that story does well to just bring them before us again. And I hope that that's exactly what we'll do this morning but I'm going to tell you it's going to be a heavy hour together um, as we consider him in particular as the man of sorrows. As we aspire, if you will, to the position of those four living creatures with all of their eyes just looking, looking, watching Especially, particularly the one there in their midst, that lamb uh, that was slain there in their midst. And yet, despite the weightiness of our thoughts uh, this morning, being that we are disciples of the Lord, we will, I have no doubt, be glad to have seen the Lord. Would you turn to the book of Hebrews with me? Hebrews chapter 5. There's a couple of portions I hope to bring before us and they are portions that I have no doubt you have just had a measure uh, of... Uh, wonder about, awe about, uh, perplexity about. And this is one of those portions, Hebrews chapter 5. And I want to start at verse 5 just so we make sure we understand who it is that's being spoken of here, because some of the things that are said might make, is this really speaking of the Lord? And it is. Chapter 5 and verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are are my son. Today, I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Some statements in here, boy, uh, just give you cause to wonder, don't they? But as we think of these things being descriptive of the Lord in the days of His flesh, to consider that there were times in which He cried out. There were times in which He prayed and made supplications and in which He shed tears. And I know as we think of the man of sorrows, perhaps we rightly so go to the cross. But you know, I have great uh, cause to be convinced that... uh, He was a man of sorrows for his whole life and caused to wonder how often there were those times when he wept. How often were those times when he made his cries out to his Father. How he knew the grief of others and entered into it himself and saw the sin and the death, the pain of others. We know there's two instances in particular where he wept, one of them being uh, just just before the arrival at the tomb of Lazarus. And I think we all do well to understand that he wasn't weeping there because Lazarus had died, but it says that he looked around and he saw them grieving, weeping, sobbing really. And he was troubled in his spirit. He was moved in his spirit when he saw these things. He asked, where have you laid him? And he wept. That other time that we know for certain, we're told plainly that he wept, was when he was coming into Jerusalem, right? And he looked over the city. And they did not know the time of their visitation. And yet here was this joyful, triumphal entry. And people around were so celebrating and happy and singing. And I just wonder if there was uh, one there close enough who could hear what the Lord said and to see the tears coming down upon his cheeks as he wept over the city. Another brother had brought this up. I can't remember who it is, so I, I feel bad about that, but it was a beautiful thought. And We're going to go to this story a little bit later. As Jonah looked over the city of Nineveh longing for its destruction... And here the Lord looking over the city longing for its salvation. What a contrast. <clears throat> but how many times did he shed tears? How often if we could have seen him would we have said, this is a man of sorrows. There's one time in particular and we have to go to two Gospels to really get the full picture. If He would turn to Mark chapter 14. It's amazing we're told of this. When you think of all the things that could have been written, well, we know it would take all the books in all the world. Even that would not be sufficient enough to contain all the things that Jesus said and did. But here are the things that we are told. And what a curious thing to us it should be that we are told about this that we can see this event here in the garden on the night he was betrayed in Mark chapter 14. What sorrow was upon our Savior there, verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther. and Please note this, uh, just the plain words of scripture sometimes, <laughs> they just communicate so much and it's so easy to go right over them. But look at these next few words here, and fell on the ground and fell on the ground. Not just laid down on the ground, not got down to the ground, but fell on the ground. I don't know if you've ever gone through something so grievous, so heavy, um, that uh, you just fall to the ground before God. He fell to the ground and prayed if it were possible the hour might pass from Him. And He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Take this cup away from Me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Who can understand what it is that he was enduring in these moments? And the words that he used, I think, I don't know if it's in this one, I, I should have looked in this before. Uh, beforehand. I, I've studied this a bit before, and if it's not here in the King James, I know it's in one of the other Gospels that the Lord speaks of being in heaviness and, and, and full of heaviness weight pressing upon him. So much so, Luke chapter 22, please. Luke chapter 22. And verse 43. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven strengthening him I'm quite sure none of us have been in that position where an angel has appeared to us from heaven to strengthen us um, and being in agony and being in agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground I know that it's probably been presented to us before that this is a true medical condition that can take place, but only under the most extreme circumstances. The pressure is so great that the blood vessels in the forehead just burst and the blood just comes out. I don't think any of us have experienced that either. And I'm telling you, I love this, even though it's such a sorrowful scene to imagine. I love the poetic scriptures and the way the spirit just puts these things because here he is in a garden he's in a garden the garden of gethsemane that word gethsemane it's a olive press the, the garden of the olive press and it's it, <laughs> there's no way that it's just coincidence that we should find the lord in a place that speaks of olives being pressed by weight and the oil that's in them that is behind the skin of them <laughs> is pressed out. And here he is being pressed in heaviness. And the blood comes out from behind his skin. What is it that he's enduring? And and this is a hard thing to take in, but this is, how do I say it? but, uh, how do you say, just? I don't don't know the right word. Uh, The anticipation of what it is that he's about to endure. It is before him in such a way that is pressing on him and he is so distressed that he feels almost as if he is going to die. And yet, he has not drank the cup yet. He says to Peter, right, shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? And if we see this scene here, and we see his distress there, we, we, we go to the cross and we say, my goodness, if, if this was what it was that he endured even before the cross, what was it that he endured on the cross? this anticipation of his suffering comes up in another place if you go to Luke chapter 12 Luke chapter 12 and look at verse 49 this first verse perhaps speaking of judgment to come Luke uses the idea of fire elsewhere in that regard and so the Lord Jesus says, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But it's this next statement that fits in with our thoughts this morning. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. This idea of being distressed, he is afflicted. Um, word studies are great. Our brother's going to do a little lesson on that later you search this word and it gives you a little illustration of what's going on because the word distressed is used about how the crowds were thronging the Lord thronging getting close to Him desiring to be near to Him even if they could to touch Him and they're thronging against Him and here this anticipation of this baptism that He is to be baptized with is pressing in on Him and here's the part that really strikes me this is about a year before He goes to the cross About a year before he goes to the cross, looking forward to it. Such distress about it until it is done. Until it is accomplished. This is one of the places in which we are very glad we understand what the word baptism means. We understand what the word baptism means. It doesn't mean a sprinkling. Right. We understand that the word itself means to submerge, to be immersed, to be fully wetted. It is to be surrounded by water. And so when we baptize, you know, this was so fun to bring out to some of the uh, young people, the kids that are Roman Catholic, and just to explain this to them, and the look on their faces as it just—you could see that it clicked with them, and they saw the sensibility of it, and. I would explain to them that in the place that we were, that if someone was to be baptized, that they would be put under the water completely, surrounded as if going into the grave with the Lord and then brought back out in new life. And we understand what that word means. I uh, i have heard, you know, we we just love traditions, right? Um, some of them are better than others, Um I just shared with Jesse, we were talking, and uh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton that said, uh, Tradition is the democracy of the dead in a good way. I mean, that's where we give the dead a voice. Um, and I've heard someone say we should hold people under the water for three seconds because the Lord was in the grave for three days. And uh, <laughs> Well, <laughs> we might be willing to let that one go. Depending on how long someone counts, you know, it could be... <laughs> But we understand that you go down in fully surrounded by the water. Here our Lord speaking of that which He is going to endure as a baptism in which He is going to be fully surrounded, not with literal water. Yes, in the grave, but even the wrath of God. The psalmist writes, You have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You have afflicted me with all your waves. I suffer your terrors and am in despair. Your fierce wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. Loved one and friend, you have Put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. Another psalmist writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. We sing of these things as well. Lord Jesus, We remember the travel of thy soul when through thy love's deep pity the waters did o'er thee roll. Baptized in death's dark waters, for us thy blood was shed, for us thou Lord of glory was numbered with the dead. T'was on that night of deepest woe when darkness round did thicken. When through deep waters thou didst go and for our sins was stricken. I didn't have this in my notes initially, but our sister was praying, playing when we came in. I had to just type the words out. It's, a, I'm sure, a hymn that is a favorite to many of us. And I love the contrast of it because we sing things like this, O oh Lord, I'm sorry, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward, to my glorious rest above. What a contrast. (laughs) He in the baptism and surrounded by the wrath of God and the grave and we, on account of that, surrounded on all sides by his love. And this baptism, this baptism is in connection with those two phrases that we know, those two statements, one made by Paul, one made by Peter, and they just uh, they confound us because Paul says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And Peter says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And the question is, what suffering accompanied this? What suffering accompanied him being the propitiation the one who would absorb all the wrath of God and extinguish it, take it fully upon himself to be cast into the deep. What suffering was it? I know we sing the song, and I don't. It's, uh, we're not going to realize it. How can we ever realize it? We sing it, but how can we truly expect to have this request granted to us? Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in what it meant to thee the holy one to bear away my sin and we stand before the cross again you close your eyes and as you just uh, picture it you imagine it maybe in particular at the breaking of bread and you in re, in a in a remembrance way you see the cross and you see him there hanging and more and more as i grow Spiritually, I increase in my awe and in my wonder of what it is that is taking place there. I cannot understand it. I don't expect to ever understand it. And yet we gaze with adoring eye, don't we? We gaze in wonder and in awe, but we gaze with an adoring eye. I used this quote yesterday and I thought it was good enough to just fit in so well with this and it's a bit of a rebuke uh, and I don't mean to suggest that we need this but um, sometimes it's just the way it is and um, it was William Kelly said we may find of course the wonder of stupidity but there is such a thing as no wonder because there is really no thought about it I believe this is the reason why if there be on the one hand the wonder of men who are surprised, there is the lack of wonder in others because they are too engrossed in earthly things to be really concerned. And to so have that cross before us and to be in wonder, to allow ourselves to wonder (laughs) because we think on it. We think on Him. We see Him. We fix our eyes on Him and it just causes us all the more to wonder with a eye. It was also our brother Kelly who wrote these words, When Jehovah laid our sins on Christ, he was made sin for us and treated as it deserved at the hand of God. For what did man or even saints know of that infinite task? God indeed marked it by a darkness which nothing in nature can account for. And Christ confessed it in that cry of his, inapplicable to all others but himself, My God, my God, why didst thou forsake me? This was the necessary accompaniment of sin-bearing, absolute abandonment by God. Though he were his God, yet Christ was made sin, and it was no make-believe, but real if anything ever was. No slurring over the least sin, no leaving out the greatest, it was Christ bearing the judgment of sin, the sole righteous way for the purification of sins. And the work was done and finished in such perfectness that the only adequate seat for him who had borne all was at the right hand of the majesty on high. That actually almost fit in well right there, by the way. I wonder Robert Chapman would say, In his spotless soul's distress, I have learned my guiltiness. Oh, how vile my low estate since my ransom was so great. And if I want to wonder more about this, if I want to look at the cross and enter into the degree that I can, how can I get help to do that? Well, the answer should be pretty clear. We get help from the Scriptures. And here's the part that I love. I get help from the Old Testament. In fact, I would suggest to you that I learn more about the sufferings of Christ from the Old Testament even than I do from the New. Uh, there's a numer- number of places we could go to even in the New Testament where the writers express to us that we, c- we learn from the Scriptures that were already written um, of Him. Perhaps just one to offer proof to anyone who needs it is the Lord himself. Remember when he came along, those two who were traveling, they did not know it was him, and they were a bit confused at the things that had transpired on that day. And um, He said some you know, pretty harsh words to them, right? But like we said yesterday, um, why do people say that? Like I said yesterday, anyways. Um, <coughs> uh, even in his rebukes, they were perfect. And he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have written. Ought not the Christ to have suffered and enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses, He expounded to them in the Scriptures all the things concerning Himself. Ought not the Christ to have suffered? And He went to the Scriptures to show them that. I know you wondered with me how much of a delight it would have been to be on that road to hear the things that the Lord would have told them. And maybe he went here. For some, we're, we're about to turn. might seem like a strange place to go. For others, you know quite well, and especially how this ties in with the baptism of which he speaks in the Gospels. Would you go to the book of Jonah? If it's any help, I don't know where Jonah is. It's right after Obadiah. <laughs> I've heard it said by uh, a few that, uh, you know, when we get to heaven, we're going to meet Obadiah. <laughs> and he's going to ask us, how did we like his book? So, <laughs> but Jonah, chapter 2. And we know that Jonah is a type of Christ because the Lord himself, uh, and there's no doubt the Lord himself spoke of Jonah in reference to his death, burial, and resurrection, saying... That, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man be in the heart of of the earth for three days and three nights, and maybe before we even read the words of Jonah here, maybe just to dispel a notion that we might have, I know that I had it for some time, images from Pinocchio, maybe <laughs> I mean in the belly of the fish there, he's sitting on a stool, he's got a table with a lamp, and he's got you know and he's just you know. It's a bit unfortunate this has happened, but he's got you know <laughs> he's got some space to work with, but there's an artist who's drawn this, and uh it's probably quite accurate to view it this way. Imagine Jonah laying there in the belly of the fish, and as he's laying there on the on on the the floor of the belly of the fish the the ceiling of the of the belly of the fish is only about an inch above his face, maybe less, and he's. He can't move. It's a little different than the image that we might have. And all the slime, you know it. I mean, just the, the smell and the darkness. Hmm. If some of these things remind us of Calvary, they ought to. Maybe not the slime, but the darkness. He was alone there. And I'm not saying this is like the cross, but uh, we know how the story ends. We know that he would be in there for three days, but did Jonah know that? Did Jonah know how long he would be there? Did he know what was going to happen to him? Did he, did he think he was going to die there? And it was from there that he cried out to the Lord. And that's one of the things as we head towards a story that we're going to finish up with, surprisingly so in the book of Judges. Judges. <laughs> um, One of the things we want to take with us is that idea of crying out, even as our Lord did in His suffering, crying out to God. And Jonah here, crying out to God in the midst of His suffering. And as we read His words, I know that for some, they're familiar, and I pray that we will just be refreshed to enjoy them once again, almost as if it's for the first time we've heard them. As a brother prayed, we're not speaking anything new But as we read his words, we don't want to diminish, certainly we don't want to diminish the actual suffering of Jonah. He did suffer greatly. But his words, along with the words of others in the scriptures, they seem to just go beyond them. They seem to go beyond their own experience. They're they're greater than that. And in that way we say, do I not hear the Messiah? Do I not hear the Lord Do I not get light concerning his suffering from the sufferings of his servants? I think we do here. And boy, how it ties in with the idea of the Lord in undergoing the baptism that he spoke of. Verse 1, And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple." The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Well, some things I feel like I don't need to stop on because I think you get it, uh, every one of us. But perhaps this, I I remember reading this numerous times and, and not making any connection. But here you have that which comes from the earth, out of the ground, the weeds being wrapped around his head. And I can't help but think of that crown of thorns wrapped around his head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Oh, some of these words. I just imagine the Lord speaking. We don't have them recorded for us as if he said them audibly, but how do you not reasonably think that these were the words that he spoke even perhaps in prayer as he was on the cross? This image that we have in the next place is just astounding. It's one of my favorites. If you'd go to the book of Lamentations, Chapter 1. And as you turn there, let me set up the scene a bit. Lamentations written by Jeremiah, our weeping prophet. And the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. And those who remained, many of them were killed. There's probably dead bodies of Israelites all over, whether they died by the sword or by disease a horrible scene, the city burned, the, the walls broken down, Jeremiah even in chains, but then freed, others taken off into captivity, and he is set free, and this part is my imagination here, uh, I just imagine him sitting there on the Mount of Olives, doesn't tell us that particularly, but he's looking at the city, and he loves that city, this is Zion, <laughs> This is Jerusalem. And it is devastated. And as he writes, he writes sometimes it seems like his own emotions concerning this. But then sometimes it's as if he's writing and he gives the city a voice. And if the city were to speak, if the city of Jerusalem were to speak, what would she say? And so he writes that. And I imagine him as he's looking there, sitting there, looking at the city destroyed and he writes as if she could speak and what he sees is he sees that just I'm saying this as I imagine the scene I'm saying this based on what we're about to read that he watches people that are just passing by going from one place to another and it doesn't seem to affect them at all that here is this city which he loves is destroyed and they seem to walk past without a care about it at all And it moves him. And he writes, look at verse, the last phrase of verse 11, "'See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. I am despised,' is the word. "'Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger.' From above he has sent fire into my bones and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. And the city would say to those who pass by as if it doesn't mean anything to them, wanting them to look, behold, see, can you find any sorrow like my sorrow? And again, I just bring before us the thought that if these things are true, and we want to enter in and not be unfaithful to the suffering which is really happening here, yet at the same time knowing that it, it, it's beyond that, that there is something greater than Jonah, something greater than this city, and the Lord there crucified in this public place outside the city where people are coming and going, and some stopping long enough to rail on him and mock him. And, some just passing by as if it means nothing and you can just imagine him. Is, it, is there any sorrow like mine? There's no, no sorrow like his. There has never been nor ever will be any sorrow like his. How deep the sorrow who can tell? which was for us endured. Again, you stand there at the cross and you look and you say, what is it that is taking place here? What suffering is our Savior enduring? As we make a bit of a transition to our last story, we really have to go to Isaiah 53. and We will not read this whole portion, just a couple of verses. Isaiah 53. And look at verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. And there's our phrase. (laughs) A man of sorrows. A man of sorrows. You know that word sorrows? It's the same word that Jeremiah uses in what we just read in Lamentations. Behold and see if there's any sorrow like mine. It's the same word being used here. A man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Just for those of you who love this, I, I, I love this kind of stuff. That's the same two words there, griefs and sorrows, in verse 3, but they're flipped. Just just love the way the Holy Spirit moved men to write these things and, and the beauty of the, the language and uh, the structure even in the midst of such a solemn subject, right? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Now here's where we're going to make a bit of a transition to our last story, smitten by God. Smitten by God and afflicted. The end of verse 6, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all over to verse 10 yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him to crush him he has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Now, here the question comes up again. Brothers and sisters, what suffering accompanies having his soul being made an offering for sin? What was required? I know this verse 11 can be taken uh, maybe a different way. I, but I'm going to read it in in this way. He shall see the labor of his soul. And who are we speaking of? We're speaking of God. We're speaking of his Father seeing the labor of his soul. And that word labor, oh, just hang on to it. It's translated in our next passage, our story that we will finish up with as the word misery. He shall see the misery of his soul and be satisfied. And our last phrase before we leave here is in the middle of verse 12. He poured out his soul unto death. What did it mean for the Savior to endure what it is that was necessary and being the propitiation for our sin? What was it? that was required of him to undergo and also as we transition here what was it like for God to do this to him this is his beloved son in whom he is well pleased and if we imagine Abraham walking with his beloved son and for three days it's as if there's this son who is dead walking with him and what did he undergo as he looked ahead to having to offer him up, convinced that he would be raised from the dead, but having to offer him up. What did it mean for God to strike him, to crush him, to make his soul an offering for sin? What suffering did he undergo? Not that it was part of what was necessary for redemption, but he underwent great suffering in his own right. In Lamentations, again, we read this, standing like an enemy. He has bent his bow with his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. And I had cause to just pause there and say, if God, when he poured out His wrath on His people and He slayed those who were pleasing to His eye. Here was the one who was most pleasing to Him, who was always pleasing to Him. And He drew back His bow and let the arrow of His wrath fly at the one who was His beloved. (laughs) The Lord was like an enemy. Another place we read, "I have forsaken my house, I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of, in this context, her enemies." And I, I imagine there that hour had come, and we go back a little bit to the garden, the hour had come, and the power of darkness was there, and oh, there's more we could say, but he gave him over his dearly beloved, into the hand of his enemies. And then as a brother, it's so neat when this happens, a brother prayed this morning, quoted this, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And would that not be true between God and his son? With that in mind, we turn to our last story where we finish in Judges chapter 10. And I will have to move through this quickly. Um, there might be things to pause on throughout it, but we'll just uh, leave it to you. And perhaps some of you have already had thoughts on this passage. To me, it was a very much a surprise to find light being given to me in regard to the suffering of Christ and to the suffering of the Father. Uh, I to try to make the case, it would take some time to make the case that Israel also is a type of Christ. Just a quick Reference to that, that uh, in the Old Testament scriptures, it speaks of, out of Egypt I called my son, and it's speaking of Israel coming out of Egypt with Moses, calling Egypt his son, and yet the Holy Spirit uses that verse in the New Testament to speak about our Lord being called out of Egypt, out of Egypt I called my son. And so, as we read of Israel and their suffering, uh, we're going to see certain things that remind us of our Lord's suffering. But of course, Israel is suffering rightly so on account of their sin, By the hand of God, and our Savior was suffering on account of sin, just not his own, by the hand of God. And they will cry out. They will cry out. But watch how this passage ends. It ought to move us if we've been having these things really before us this whole time. This very much ought to move us. Watch what happens here. Then the children of Israel, verse 6. Again, did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he sold them into the the, hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. From that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years all the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim. And we just have to pause on this next statement. So that Israel was severely distressed. That word distressed is to press. They are being pressed in, as, we, as I made mention earlier, being pressed in severely really by the hand of God. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And brothers and sisters, everything that I've been sharing this morning is kind of leading up to this last last sentence. And his soul... Soul of God could not endure, could no longer endure the misery. That's our word labor from Isaiah fifty three. His soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. They're suffering. They're crying out. They're suffering rightly so for their sin at His hand. And their suffering, as great as it might be, their distress, their affliction, as intense as it might be, what is it in comparison to what the Lord endured? And yet God is moved. He can't endure their misery. So what does He do? What does He do again for them? He delivers them again. He can't endure what it is that they are going through. And so... He delivers them. And yet, His beloved Son. He would have to pour out His soul unto death. There would be no deliverance from the grave, yes, but from that suffering and from the death, there would be no deliverance. He would have to drink that cup all the way to the dregs of it. He would have to suffer until it was accomplished. And despite his cries, despite his great sorrow and like no other sorrow, and despite the affliction of the father himself and the affliction of his son, he would not deliver him, if you will, but permit him to give him a command to pour out his soul into death. Of thy father's heart, the object, Yet in depths of anguish laid. You know, the perfect verse to just finish up with uh, is probably the most famous one in all of the scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is our Savior. This is the one who's so worthy of us to fix our eyes upon. And I hope you've enjoyed, although it's been a somber time to view him. I hope you're glad. Let's pray. Our God, we we are in awe once again and wonder of what it is that took place there at Calvary. We have it before us by faith. We view that place and we see him there And we admit to you that we do not understand what it is that's taking place there. Not, I mean, we know those things which you would desire us to know, but to really enter in. We stand seemingly on the outside, um, our feet perhaps as if our toes are just in the water on the shore of a great ocean, and we wonder. And yet we do so with an adoring eye. We love our Savior. We thank you for him. And we even imagined for a moment also what it was for you to spite him and to crush him even for us because of love for us. Yes, for your glory, but also very much so because of your love for us. This is how we know love because you sent him into the world that we might live through him. This is how your love has been manifested that you sent him to be the propitiation for our sins. And oh, how he is worthy of us having him before us at all times, in an ever-increasing manner, to be fixing our eyes on him and watching him closely. Would you help us with this? And would not great things come out of this, even revival? We ask these things even for his namesake. Amen.